Yeah, yeah, it's fun. I'll edit that out in a second. So, okay, so <laughs> so now we're gonna gonna uh, introduce the episode. Yes, so we're back again with the episode of Block Chat Radio. It's number five now. Um, a very exciting conversation to be had today. We're here with the GTC Good Technology Collective, uh, based over out in Ger- Germany, Berlin, Berlin, Germany. And we're speaking today with Travis Scott and Nico Borsotto. And we're going to have a conversation about money, economics, decentralization, exponentialism, and try to understand and really go through the process of thinking about how money has changed over time with technology and with the evolution of society. So that's kind of like the foundation of this conversation, but we think it's going to emerge into something quite beautiful. So I think we can jump in and just introduce ourselves. I'm really stoked for this episode. It's been, you know, a long time coming. Um, and I think it's also as well that the, the, the first block chat three-way conversation. So I'm really, really excited about this. Uh, this is my first time having a threesome on air. So <laughs> it's quite exciting. Um, so I'm going to stop talking for a moment. I'm going to first introduce uh, Nico Borsotto. Um, could you please introduce yourself? What, you know, where are you from? What do you do? What's your role at GTC? Hi, Hassani. Thank you very much once again for inviting me to this threesome. It's also my first threesome on air or <laughs> not on air. <laughs> <At least. laughs> so thank you very much also for giving this opportunity to the Good Technology Collective. Like you said, we're based here in Berlin, but we actually a European initiative to discuss uh, what makes technology good and how can we sponsor and protect and support the development of good technology. I am an economist. I have studied and research economics in Brazil, my my native country, in Germany and in Taiwan, China. And I'm a big fan of technology. And I think what we're gonna see here is technology, innovation and money, sometimes help society, sometimes doesn't. And we're gonna see what makes good financial technology. All the way to you, Travis. Hello, so I'm Travis Scott. Uh, I come from South Africa originally and I'm part of the GTC. Uh, my background is in mechanical engineering, so my role in the GCC will be to focus more on industry, uh, mechanical, electrical, and uh, obviously that bleeds a bit into software, and just about like what's happening in the world today in terms of mechanical, electrical, and industri- uh, industry. Very good. Very, very good. So, yeah, I think that's a great in- introduction. I think, as well, we'll also leave links to GTC um and your linkedin profiles etc at the end of the podcast um in the in in the in, in the cover uh, and notes so yeah i think people can then learn more about you guys through that and the gtc as well um so tell me about the gtc how did it start what was the um aim from the get what was the vision from the start of making the gtc as founding members uh, I think everything started in the beginning of last year and it came up from people in the startup scene here in berlin where they felt the technology could be better, especially for society in general, and sometimes for, for governments, but they didn't like how activism was being done as being very against technology and very uh, defensive of the past in a sense that they, uh, a lot of the critics about technology gave the idea that they would just prefer living in the 1980s for the rest of their lives. 
So a lot wow. of uh, the questioning basically was how can we talk about how technology can be better on a social level, so not only in, on an economical level, but at the same time wanting more technology and wanting more innovation. So uh, those people that started the GTC, uh, they were also thinking, okay, how can I make a mark? And we decided to start looking for people that uh, were doing technology in at least one different way so that you're not going to be just an iot expert but rather an iot and ethics or iot and like data usage uh, it, it took a while for us to start everything as a collective there is always a questioning of how to be efficient at the same time free and open the gtc does no editorial control over the opinion of its members and the idea is that we can create something as far apart as the talk bubble as possible. So where people can come and call call ourselves in our own bullshit sometimes and tell us how we can be better. That's very cool. And um, I like how you are enabling cross-pollination um, between people, between people in the GTC, where it's not just, oh, I'm a data scientist or oh, I'm a you know an activist. You're actually able to bridge the gaps between industries people sectors and create cross-pollination there that's quite exciting and what kind of what what have you seen so far emerge from this process so 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 what are you doing delivering creating through the gtc so i think right now one of the things that we're proudest of are the media partnerships that we managed to enable with uh, classic mainstream media it's funny talking about this in a podcast which is something much much more innovative than your classic mainstream media. But the idea was to give people something to say about technology, actually the avenue to get the message across and to help them make this into a message that uh, moms and pops all over the world can basically understand. So that you can talk about technology without expecting the listener to have a PhD in economics or engineering to understand it. Uh, so right now we run partnerships with the Next Web based in the Netherlands, with entrepreneur.com, the American Magazine, we have contributors in Forbes, uh, DZone, and many other websites and, and publications. I, I think that's what our products. I believe in 2018, we sponsored or directly published more than 20 articles about this, from blockchain and democracy all the way to what makes an ecosystem thrive uh, for technology. So I'm very, I think that's one of our greatest achievements for 2018. Wow, that's awesome. And Travis, what for you has been your biggest achievement so far with GTC? Well, I think uh, taking part in the conversations is pretty interesting, and it's good to be part of a, a collective of people who all have their own opinion about uh, where technology is heading and where uh, society using technology is heading. And the thing with technology at the moment is it never in history has technology affected so many people at the same time. Mm. Like normally, technology has time to propagate and like go through the its growth stages, whereas now when a technology comes out and it's very popular, it impacts the entire world. So I think it's important that we, we build a community around the technology collective that encourages people to work together to figure out how this technology should work for us and with us instead of you know, just deeming it as like an evil technology that's trying to take over what we're doing. You know? mm. um, and just you know, working together closely with Nico and all the, the things that we've been going through over the past year, that's been a, a very interesting uh, couple of months to be working so closely with Nico. That's really great. And I really resonate with the idea of creating a platform for people to engage with technology in a more friendly way and being able to discuss and think about the implications of technology. Because it does seem sometimes that 
it's being forced upon us, forced down our throats. Whereas you, you're actually being able to create a space and ask questions like, what does it mean to have internet access everywhere, et cetera? And what does it mean to have access to all this technology, exponential technology, and how it's changing the way that we live our lives? And I really understand and get that. So I think it's adding real value to the world by being able to have this platform, this space to kind of discuss and think about what it all means. So that's really awesome. and. Obviously, I invited you on, 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 on the podcast today to talk about some of these themes, in particular, money, economics, in a decentralized, exponential world. And I think we can now jump in and kind of have that discussion. And I think, I think, we'll, I think I'm going to ask Nico to begin with, to kind of open up, to open up for us this discussion, this idea, because before the episode, before the podcast begun, you know, we were talking about some concepts and themes about money and economics and about how technology is, is changing all of that. And I'm quite interested and keen to kind of think about, right, what have you seen in the last 12 months, last, last 24 months? What have you seen in technology that has changed the way economics has worked across society? That's the first question. <laughs> of course. So I like to say uh, to my friends and the people in the Good Technology Collector, actually, that economics and technology are actually very similar in a couple of regards. And the first one, it is that it's decided by the few and used by the many, that it is, in a sense, uh, invisible, and that it affects people across sectors without much of an understanding on why and how. And technology is kind of the same, even though you could argue that the users kind of have to decide to use a technology. What we see nowadays is more and more technology that basically uh, gets hold of your data or has an impact on your life, uh, you're wanting or not. Even the whole GDPR uh, movement in Europe was in case uh, caused by that as well, that people want a bit more control on how technology would deal with them. And it's very interesting when you mix technology and economics together is the fact that many of the newest iterations of technology are not actually offering us anything new, but rather just providing us slight economical efficiencies on old things. Uh, I think today we're gonna talk about money a lot and we're gonna understand that money basically is just becoming more and more efficient with time and that most technologies don't create new ways of using money, but rather just better ways to using what we were using before. So we can actually further on divide this on actual technological innovations that created new ways to use money. So here we have, for example, mortgages and asset-backed uh, loans, all the way to uh, credit cards, for example, with something that completely changed the way the money was used. But at the same time, if you look at the whole uh, fintech revolutions nowadays, uh, with N26 in Germany, New Bank in Brazil, and a couple of others, is more like how can we make the old banking system more efficient? How can we slash taxes and fees? How can we make the, the same thing as before, but for 50% of the price? So that is that is a big distinction to make in financial technology. Hmm. Okay. And have there been any projects or companies that you've seen implementing this new way of slashing costs and fees and using technology to actually leverage and better improve the economic system? Yeah, so in a sense, you have a couple of the old ones like Funding Circle, right? Uh, an idea of capturing resources 
for lending from, from traditional peer lending, what, what we call nowadays. You have microloans as well as a social idea. And there's basically uh, ways on how can we turn money to do slightly different things. So when you tell me that I can invest directly into my community by giving uh, a one hundredth of a part, a one percent of a loan to a local um, factory, this is completely different than how it was back in the day where you had to be a gatekeeper and you had to go to a bank or you had to go to a big investor to do it. So this, this literally changes the way that people see funding and people see investment. Uh, I really like, uh, and that's a very personal position of mine, I really like the new banking systems being created. And we're going to be talking about blockchain later on as well. But I feel that banks had an oversized control of the economy in a sense. And then this new wave of competitors offering no fees, offering no taxes, it, it did a lot to increase transparency in banking. It's not, it's not only about saving money, it's about making the whole industry more simple, more uh, constrained as well after the financial crisis and more transparent to their customers. Yes, yeah. Because that's the idea ultimately, isn't it? It's being able to disrupt an existing structure reorganize it and make it more effective, more transparent and better for the people that are actually using it. And I want to now ask Travis, what do you think in terms of this? Have you seen, what have you seen as the biggest change in technology and economics over the past, I don't know, 24 months? Has any company project event popped out and caught your attention as being a real step change in how technology is changing how the way we use money? Um, man, that's a, a tough question. <laughs> uh, I'm not an economist, so my interest doesn't really lie necessarily in that field. But there's big things that are like personally affect me, like uh, especially living in Germany. It's a, a very strange banking system here in Germany. And uh, over the past couple of years, this bank opened up called Number 26. And it's fantastic. It makes banking so much easier, so much more efficient especially in a system like Germany, where it's very difficult to open a bank, very difficult to use online banking, mm. pay for things. It just made things so much more streamlined. And I think it's, that's especially something that gets taken for granted for in the UK, where you know, contactless payments, uh, cashless payments, is like a, it's a day-to-day -day life in the UK, whereas you know, company, uh, countries like Germany don't really function in that way. Um, but in terms of the, the new technologies and things like that, I think the best person to cover that sort of topic is Nico. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's quite interesting because I think yesterday I wanted to buy some, some food, you know, just in the evening. And unfortunately, I couldn't use my phone. I couldn't use Apple Pay to, to buy food. And I went to, I think I went, I think oh, I, went wow. I went to about five street food places. Um, and I just could not buy food using my phone. And I was just like, really? It's 2018. But of course, you know, in my mind, I have this expectation to be able to use Apple Pay everywhere now. But of course, not everywhere actually has that facility yet. And uh, particularly in, in, in big cities, you know, for example, like London or Berlin or Barcelona, you know, you're able to use it basically everywhere. But there is this expectation now, I think, you know, in society that, Technology should be the same everywhere. And I wonder what the implication of that is. And is there value in there being places of low technology and places of high technology? And uh, go on. Yeah, actually, the, uh, the way that you said it reminded me of something that happened uh, to myself. I think six months ago, I was going to Oslo for a conference. 
And it's funny because uh, Norway doesn't have the euro, they use uh, a krona. And I was worried about that before I traveled. I thought like, oh, I have to change money, I'll have to do this. But in the end, I forgot. And the funny thing is, I kind of forgot that I forgot because when you get to Norway, everything is you can pay on your phone, everything you can pay by card, everything, there is an app that you can buy directly from. So in the end, I spent, I believe, four days in Oslo and never realized that I was not paying in euros other than by seeing the prices being slightly different. So technology does help us to, to make this whole real life more seamless. So if we didn't manage to get Norway to accept the euro for like political reasons, uh, technology can kind of solve the problem anyway, where it makes it so seamless to use the euro in a non-euro accepting country. That's really interesting. Uh, yeah, that, come, that brings to my mind because I remember about I don't know, maybe five years ago, when I was younger and going traveling for the first few times, I went over to Italy and it was like a whole thing for me. It's like, wow, I have to like, you know, go to another country and like get money out and go to a post office and get an exchange rate and find the best exchange rate and then have the, all this cash in my hands and then get a travel cash passport so that I can withdraw more money over overseas, but not pay any actual fees for the transaction. And it was like a whole thing. And then just recently, I came back from Barcelona, hence my examples a moment ago in my list of cities, um, where I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't even get any money at the, at the cash point, at the post office. I literally just flew out there and, and paid on Apple Pay the whole time. And then I came back and then my app told me, oh, you spent X amount of money uh, whilst you were in Barcelona. And I was like, that's awesome. The fact that I'm able to you know, have my day-to-day -day life here in the UK, fly overseas, not even worry about exchange rates or worry about getting cash out or worrying about insuring my cards, that seamlessness that technology provides, you know, when traveling around the world or, or, or when moving around, you know, across borders. And essentially the world kind of becomes this one, this one homogenous place as opposed to having to kind of feel the sense of, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to a different universe, a different coin, a different currency. It's kind of, kind of the same. And I, I, I really, really appreciate that. And I think as well, you know, I actually use my my UK bank card for a couple of transactions. And I was like, looking at my statement, I was like, what? Like, I've been charged with 25p per transaction. And I said, that, that isn't a lot of money. But if you scale that, that's really unsustainable. And I kind of think, well, pff, <laughs> you know, come on, banks, <laughs> you know? But uh, just, like, just to pick up on that topic, um, so as, like, as the, the world moved to paper money and away from gold, because obviously if you're like trading internationally with gold, it's very, very easy to take gold and give it to someone and be like, here's some gold that's worth a lot of gold. And they're like, yeah, we, we can see that gold is worth a lot of gold. But as the world started moving to paper money and um, banks started moving away from accepting gold and accepting paper money, there came this like really huge problem where in the, U in the UK, there would be the large banks and then small towns and cities further away from that would have smaller banks. And then, you know, banks in Italy and banks in Spain would have their own paper money. All the different banks in the UK had their own version of paper money. So as people were moving around and trying to spend their paper money in different towns and things, it became a problem because some banks were like, no, we're not going to accept that money because it's only a small bank and it might collapse or this and that, you know? And then as people were trading to other countries, they would show up in Spain where some guy was expecting to get, you know, a handful of gold for what he was about to sell. You know, like a British sailor now puts a, a paper note in his hand and he, he has no understanding of what to do with this paper money. So, yes. like, we still have a problem that is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years old of going to a country 
and you still have to change this paper money for something that's equally as valuable, but somebody else understands it, you know? And I think that's a big thing that's about to change in, in banking where people can go anywhere in the world and it's just something that happens. Like you don't have to worry about how much it's worth, the change, changing it, going out of your way to make sure that you're not being like ripped off for spending a certain amount of money and getting the wrong exchange rates and things like that. So I think the technology that's happening now is, is solving a problem that we've had for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm. Um, and just some commentary on that. It's true. And obviously, there are different economies in different parts of the world and different cities and different economic activity, which would then necessitate the need for different currency, potentially. But obviously, if we have a homogenized currency, it assumes that the economy is homogenized across the whole globe and actually isn't. And, and Nika, I wanted to ask you about some commentary because I'm not an economist. Um, tell me, you know, you, know, you know, what factors influence the use of a currency in a certain place. I mean, my, my example just then was the idea that the economy, the activity of the economy is different in different parts of the world. But I want to understand in a more detailed way, what are the implications of using currency in certain parts of the world? What factors influence the use of certain currency in a certain part of the world? Of course. So let's start nowadays by, by our present situation. And I think the best example, especially for Europeans listening, it's Greece. So Greece, for a long time, a lot of economists said that one of the reasons why Greece was faring so badly was their inability to control their own currency. Uh, and on a very basic level, it basically meant that as the, econo uh, the economy collapsed or the economy reduced in size, it would have been better for the Greek government to debase or devalue their currency so that they could stay competitive. So in that sense, if you have an economy that's contracting very fast or an economy that's very weak, and they export things of other, to other countries or they import things from other countries, uh, if they have their own currency, you would see the currency going down together with the economy in a sense. And that creates kind of a, a barrier of protection or a small layer of fat that can protect the economy a bit. Uh, so depending on to whom you talk about this, there are people who find this more, import, uh, more important or less important. I believe it's a very temporary measure. I, do, I don't believe that that could save an economy in itself, but rather it's something that can give you a bit more time, which is something that the Greeks maybe didn't have. But when you're looking across different countries, you come up to the, to the idea of how autonomous the currency actually is. And you have multiple currencies around the world, for example, who are pegged to the dollar. Uh, you have in the future multiple economies in Southeast Asia, for example, that would have to be indirectly pegged to the Chinese yuan. And what does that mean? What does that mean that you have a, your own country, but you have to peg your currency to another one? It is that currencies are mostly something traded internationally. And that even though you might have your own ideas on why, on how you should treat your currency, you're always gonna depend on how others treat their own. And how you, like Travis said, how you exchange it. Because in a world like today, where everybody expects to be able to change dollars into euros, into Saudi rias, you have to be able to do this in a seamless and efficient fashion. Yes. So, so you mentioned how with Greece, if I'm correct, you said that their response could have, or rather should have been to devalue their currency as a function of market slowdown. Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. But they didn't have that option because they used the euro, just like the whole European Union. Ah. Uh, and the euro kind of uh, creates, uh, how can I say this without many of my economist friends 
hunting me down and <laughs> saying that I'm dumping down the whole economic question. But uh, the euro causes a problem where you have many strong economies sharing the same currency as many weak ones. Mm. So the stronger the German currency, for example, is, uh, which was a Deutsche Mark beforehand, which was always a very strong uh, currency, when you combine with the French currency, and I imagine the Italian one, they created the euro first, and then many other countries just kind of decided to ditch their own currencies and join in the euro. So even though the Greek economy was going very, very badly, the, the German economy was doing fine. And there was no mm. need for the Germans to debase their currency. Actually, the more they exported and the more the, they were productive, they actually shored up the euro against other things. So if you, if you take a look at how the Greek economy went down and you make a comparison of the euro to the dollar, you would see that there's almost no connection. We had a whole European crisis, Eurozone crisis, they called, and that only saw minor effects on the value of the euro because you always had very strong economies behind it. Can I jump in here and ask a question, um, Derek? Like, uh, Tsuniku, um, as the world is, is moving through like money as a history, we always came out with these like major uh, currencies that all the other currencies were pegged to, like with the US dollar and now the euro, and then it's the same thing's going to happen in China. Uh, how does having one large economy affect the security of smaller microeconomies? And how could something like that translate into, you know, like a, a blockchain currency where there's no individual countries and bodies controlling their own little microcurrencies within that cryptocurrency? Because that's like, that's something that really interests me now that it came up. Like, you know, what happens if the US, uh, the US Europe and China create this, you know, this huge blockchain network, and then all these other smaller countries with less developed currencies get left behind? Yes. So normally companies, uh, if you see the Middle East, for example, for a long period of time, they had most of their currencies directly back to the dollar. And uh, the matter of hand was that because they, for any specific social issue, like in the case of the Middle East, it was that they basically produced tons of uh, oil barrels and they sell those mostly for dollars in the international market. They had a huge wave of dollars coming into their country and they had to make a choice or they would translate this directly into local currency at any value where you would see a, a increase in inflation tremendously on the local currency or they would create a peg and only exchange the dollars at the moment where the peg was in risk so they would just come up with a number let's say that i don't know right now how much is the riyadh to the dollar but they would say that one dollar is equal five riyadh and if that number starts becoming very low they would sell dollars in the international market to shore up the real. And if the number became very high, they would buy dollars in the international market to protect the real as well. So it's a way of you trying to create a stable playing field and protecting your currency in that way. That is meant uh, those currencies, those countries, for example, it's very common that they literally sit on top of mountains of dollars that they never exchange to their local currency. It's a very specific thing. And if you look at high up, uh, in history, like you mentioned, history, that is something that happened many times before, in a sense. So you had the, the Roman Empire, and you had the Persian Empires, and the Chinese Empires, and every time that a country became big enough, they tried to push their currency, and directly or indirectly, it became the currency of other countries as well. And even nowadays, you have, for example, Zimbabwe, where many of the deals there are made with dollars, actually. Not Zimbabwe dollars, but real American dollars. So it's very common. 
Actually, can I just quickly two sure. seconds? I have some information here about that while we're here. Uh, the Zimbabwe, the Zimbabwe billions to deal with hyperinflation of two two hundred and thirty one million percent. <laughs> That's the hyperinflation that happened in Zimbabwe. Yeah. What? Um, and the price wow. of a loaf of bread cost three billion Zimbabwean dollars. And this actually happened in the time that I was living in South Africa between like two thousand six to two thousand ten or eleven. And uh, like, I just remember it was crazy. Like every other week, there was a, a new like note being printed by Zimbabwe and they were just getting larger and larger. And it's actually the largest government issued note in the world. And it's a $1 trillion note. That's 14 zeros after a oh one. My God. <laughs> That's insane, right? <laughs> but sorry, Karen, Karen, where you wow. picked up? Where I picked up no worries. Uh, I think the, the main lesson to, to be seen here is that money basically has to follow a couple of rules to be considered money and to be accepted by the population in general. I think that even that the European Central Bank has a very nice definition, but it's uh, jumping from my mind right now. But to be the first one is to be a hold uh, of value. So if a currency changes values very often, it's very hard to be used as a currency. So if one day you wake up and an apple can be bought with ten dollars, and the the next day is twenty, and then the day after that is seven. How can you do business in such a world? And very, very easily, that currency is going to be dropped for a, for a other easier currency to to work with. At the other way, it has to be easy access. It has to be something that you can get a hold of easily and spend. And the person who gets the currency can also has to be able to put it in the bank or put it in somewhere else. And the final part is about trust. And trust is the most, uh, let's say. We're, we're, we're jumping here a bit from economics and more into like sociology and everything else. So trust in a currency basically means trust in whoever issues that currency. And when we, when we see at most uh, hyperinflation cases in history, it is a fact that the people who are issuing the currency were or completely distrusted or they, they betrayed the trust of the, of the population. And in a very funny way, uh, the society changes currency faster than the governments would want them to. So, like we see the Zimbabwe's like very Zimbabweans like very fast. They get a hold of a couple of dollars and start changing their currency to dollars. But it honestly could have been the UN, could have been even uh, gold and silver, in in other in other times. So a currency has to be trusted. A currency has to be a holder of value. And that currency has to be efficient in the way that is exchanged and saved and stored and invested. So I think like this is this is something that we're discussing right now. But honestly, if we go back to the beginning of currencies, it would basically be the same thing, which is very interesting. Yeah, just to quickly pick up off of like the whole talk about pegging money to the dollar. Um, I think like the original reason that money was pegged to the dollar was because of after the first and second world war. Uh, European countries actually spent and bought so many things from the US that after the wars, when they had to start paying back the debt, there was just such an enormous amount of debt owed to the US. Um, so what they decided to do instead was that like over time they would pay back that debt. But in the meantime, they would like peg the gold under the US dollar. And correct me if I go wrong at any point with this, Nico. I think you know a bit more than me. No worries. Uh, and then because of that, like, all of the, the European money started being pegged to the US dollar. And it actually stayed like that for a very long time until um, Charles de Gaulle, he thought like, actually, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna take all of this like promissory notes that we have from the US 
and go and pick up all of our gold. So he just sent some ships over to the States. And he's like, here we are. We want to pick up all of our gold now that we've like been sorting this out. And boatloads of gold started going back to France. And then other countries started doing the same thing. They're like, you know what? You're right. We want to come and pick up the money that we have now. And uh, shortly after that, the US, uh, I think it was Nixon, like, actually took the gold, like the, the dollar off of the gold standard. And the gold standard was actually the thing that drove what we were talking about before, where you could go to Italy, give someone a piece of paper that had the gold standard, which promised that that piece of paper was worth so much gold. Um, so that had been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, ensuring that people could trade paper money all over the world. Um, and then Nixon took the dollar off of the gold standard, but because people had been pegging money to the US dollar for so long, they just decided to leave it there. And to this day, a lot of, uh, uh, to this day, a lot of, countries still um still are pegged to the us dollar that's really interesting yeah and I, I think as well when you talk about the nixon and the unpegging of the dollar to the gold standard i found that fascinating and that really was you know a real step change in economics internationally globally yeah, because the repercussions are then very had, big actually of that Oh, they're huge. And, and I'd love to ask Nico what the implications, repercussions of unpegging the gold standard actually was. Obviously, we've seen quantitative easing and money printing in the Fed and the ECB and the... Yeah, <laughs> there's many... It's very interesting because in economics, there's many times uh, things that uh, the people in academia will say, we should really do this or this should be the best way. But to do it in real life takes such a, a huge amount of balls uh that it has to be in a very specific moment in time and it has to be a very specific man or woman to to try to do this and i i honestly i'm not sure if it was nixon who did it but if it probably was we can double check this at any point but uh, it was i think i think it was nixon i think it was i'll, I'll just like oh yeah one second i'll go and google one second nixon gold standard in 71 1971 yeah, Nixon uh, basically then yeah removed the removed the pegging so, from the gold standard in, in, into gold. Seventy one. So yeah. basically, what that meant for for Americans back then, or what was ex expected to mean, it was that uh, beforehand you believed in the U.S. dollar because it was based on gold, or some gold that you never saw actually, but a gold that you believe that the Americans had, and that came from the very origin of a banknote as being something that you would put your gold inside of a bank or a gold, with a goldsmith and he would give you a note but at any point you could come back and get your gold back so you, you had a very physical security base on the currency and that's also what meant for governments if you had a x amount of gold you could create x amount of currency if that was what it was done directly to we can we can mm. argue but what what happened basically to to the to the overall population when you say we're not going to peg the dollar to anything. It was for the first time people had to believe in their government fully and, and nothing else. And they had to believe that the government would be wise enough to not uh, bankrupt them on hyperinflation. And I think it's a very, a very high point for Americans that they managed to do this with no ensuing economic crisis. Actually, on the contrary, you would see this unpegging of the gold actually spurring economic growth because people believe in their government and because the government now has a more a, a higher freedom to print money and to change money supply in the way that they find it best. But you mentioned quantitative easing, which is very interesting because that's another, it's also another question. Many times you have the economists and the academia basically saying, all right, we really should do this. This will be good for the economy. 
but because it's such a big shift from our day-to-day operations and how economics has always been done. And in economics, I mean, uh, inside of the ministries and inside of like of government, it's very hard to try something really new because you're directly involving the lives of millions. True. Like it, it, it's seen as something very unfair to try out big new things that you're not 100% sure they're going to uh, work. I think you guys that lived in England, you see that many times the budgets and the economic policy that is defended in developed countries are normally very slight changes from the year before. Like they never want to try something too bold because they, the risk of it causing damage is, is too big. Like the, the damage would be too big even if the risk is small. And pegging the gold standard, uh, unpegging uh, the dollar, canceling the gold standard had that impact not only for America, but for the entire world. Because if you think that the Americans were pegged to gold and then the Europeans and the Middle East was pegged to the dollar, the day that the dollar was unpacked to gold, the dollar was pegged to nothing. And then you could say that the, the, the Deutsche Mark also pegged to nothing. So it was interesting that actually we didn't see any economic recession or anything of the, of the like. Uh, during that period but it was a very brave yeah because as well yeah 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 a very brave move i think with 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 this notion of unpegging the idea that you're able to disconnect that from a source of concrete physical value i'm just trying to understand and really trying to think about in your in your view how do you actually define value because for me it's more about is someone willing to exchange something useful for... Yeah, could I quickly jump in on that? Um, so in the beginning, like at the beginning when we were trading goods for services and goods for goods and things like that, there came this, uh, it's like a social, a social thing that happens. It's called overcoming the coincidence of wants. So what happens is, is like if you're a fisherman, a lot of people want your fish, but if you grow maize, like you can only harvest maize once a year. Hmm. So as a fisherman, you can provide fish all year round and people always want it. But as a person who provides maize, you can only do it once a year, but at a much larger scale. So it became this problem where people were like, I promise you that next year you will get maize if I can have fish every day. But what happens is if there's like a drought or something, you would lose that security because you would lose all of your maize and people wouldn't trust you anymore. Right. Um, and then there's another really good quote by a guy called John Law. I'm just trying to find the exact quote. Uh, uh, John Law, yeah. And it, it's funny, his name is Law, but he spent most of his life running from the law because he gambled and st- <laughs> stole a lot of money. Um, maybe wow. if Nico wants to pick up, I can quickly find the quotes. And, yeah. Of course. So like, uh, like Travis was saying, like, this of once, it's something which is very, very interesting because it basically means that you have to find a third party or a third object that would store value. And we come back again to the holder of value, store of value. It had to be something that both parties would accept there was intrinsic value in. And basically, you could change maize for X and then change X for fish at a later point. But the question is how how to choose it. And if you go back in, uh, for example, Polynesian uh, societies would use specific kinds of shells or rocks because it had to be something that had like almost a limited supply or create was created very slowly because otherwise you'd have like some very early form of hyperinflation. But it had to be something that people in your community or society saw it as having value. 
So we, we did that change because many, many societies all over the world actually saw value in gold and silver. And gold also had another advantage, and I think Travis can correct me on that one if I'm wrong, is that gold doesn't rust in the way that other metals do. So it's a very good storage of value. You can make mm. like a small pile of gold, uh, put it in a safe, and then come back five years later, and it's the same pile of gold. Meanwhile, if you try to store something organic like wood, it would uh, rot away, or if yeah. you try to, to put like metal, other types of metal, it could have rusted away as well. So it had to be, so that is a, a natural evolution. But to come back to the point of what is value, value is whatever society considers it to be. It has no attachment to any other thing other than societal implications. Hmm. Yeah, Com- commentary on what you said, Nika, about you know the, the nature as such of gold made it the perfect candidate as a store of value. The fact that the funny thing is, it, it, it was a very good candidate, but it was not the perfect candidate. Right. It's interesting because gold is actually very rare. Yes. And if you need a currency, you need something that exists enough of for you to exchange for other things. Let's say that in our little society, the, um, the currency that we use is huge sculptures that we take five years doing, each one of us. So even if you worked your whole life, in the best case, you have, what, 20 sculptures with you. How can you exchange that for every day-to-day things like bread and milk? How could you do it? Because you don't have enough units of your currency to exchange every time. Exactly. So gold was a very good, uh, one of, a very good holder of value. And what we will see is that many societies will have gold as one currency, and then they will have parallel currencies under gold and they would create some kind of exchange mechanism saying, let's say uh, 10 uh, silver pieces equal one gold piece or 20 copper pieces equal one gold piece. They had to create something under gold with, which existed much more of and to be able to be exchanged on a day-to-day basis. And that's also where money is gonna come in. You always, because gold was always this like top of the pyramid, it was okay for banknotes to be under it and be accepted as something that you can exchange later on for money. Yes, so, yes, 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 exactly. And I think now is a good time to gear into the blockchain and crypto. <laughs> and blockchain. obviously now, you know, we're seeing we're seeing an iteration of this money money system gold, you know, but in terms of a algorithm algorithmic process in terms of computer power and hashing and virtual coins and currency and that represents a real shift in the human the human condition the human mind in terms of how we actually value value in terms of how we ascribe value and very interesting how we've gone from the physical domain the digital domain and isn't that fascinating and what implications do you think nico nico first travis after um of this switch for digital what do you think about that so the, in my opinion first we had a very early switch to digital first in banking right the moment that we started accepting that our paychecks were not going to be paid in in currency to us but rather as a number on a screen and that is that was an unpacking of sorts as well that we could believe in money that would have trust in money away from the physical part so if 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 
dropping the dollar was one thing to dropping uh, the idea that money had to be physical was another thing. So, but actually when you move to the cryptocurrency side, and I believe that even though we said blockchain here, that's a very cryptocurrency question. Sometimes I get very angry when people try and people ask me this a lot. They ask, Nicholas, if you do, if you are an economist and you work with technology, what uh, value do you think the uh, Bitcoin should have? Or what would be a natural state for Bitcoin? And first of all, I am definitely not the person to answer that question. There's much, much better economists for that. But the truth is also that because Bitcoin is not connected to any real economy, there's, there's no answer to that question. Like Bitcoin will have the value that society thought it has. In a sense, we basically come back to shells on a beach, right? As long as there is a community which see value on, on fractions of Bitcoin or Bitcoin itself, that would be the value that it would be exchanged uh, for. And I think the biggest people are very scared right now because for a very long period of time, you had currency making and currency checking and security being a very centralized affair. But in a very funny twist, the origins of money is actually a very decentralized affair. It's even older than government. So we could say that as we develop new technology and we create a new ways to apply trust, it is a natural evolution that people create other forms of exchange. So that's how I, I think there's a lot of scare in the market. And I think it's mostly about the amount of money that's being pushed into cryptocurrencies of any sort. And, but it is not something completely new in our society, in the, like human society. It might be in the 20th century. Travis, what do you think? Man, that's a, a difficult question to pose to someone who's not a, an economist. Talk about tech, Travis. Go, into, go have a spiel about tech. Go on. Jump yeah, in, run, tech. run, run to tech. <laughs> no, I think, uh, I think it's, a big, it's a big thing. So, you know, gold, holding gold in your hand is, is one thing, but, you know, going into a shop and swiping a piece of plastic through another piece of plastic, or like nowadays you don't even have to touch them together. It's just purely contactless. I think it's purely trust in a system and as bad as people are for like not trusting each other and, and trying to take money away from each other and things like that. When you put enough people together in a society that there naturally comes this form of trust that happens and it, it normally happens around money. So I think what's happening with blockchain is just going to be, it's purely going to be built around the society that, that accepts it first and, and who uses it and puts down the laws and the things around it. I think it's going to be a, a slow growth because it's a, a whole different technology that, than we've ever used before to exchange value. And I think it's a big thing that it's important that people understand it and people are talking about it and that it's getting used in a very transparent way where people can see how it's being used and the flaws that come along with using it. Because I think there will be a lot of flaws with using a universal currency. Like we spoke before, you know, a universal currency is a difficult thing because if Germany has a very strong economy and then a place like Greece, Greece is, uh, adopts a very strong cryptocurrency and all of a sudden their currency lifts up because of something like that, I think it's diff difficult to manage micro currencies inside of very large economies. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If that, if that makes sense. I think that's the, to me, that's looking from the outside in. I think that's something that I'm pretty skeptical about blockchain and, and cryptocurrency. Mm, yeah. That's some very interesting commentary. Yeah. I think I think we have an opportunity here as well to plug in a bit about exponential technologies, which I know is something that you really like, Hassani. Yes. 
And it is that many of the technologies that we see nowadays, they kind of pressure our society and pressure our governments to make changes that they could have done without the technology, but they just didn't have the interest to, or they were too afraid to do it. So uh, we mentioned before about like a funding circle, which was to give people the opportunity to invest in different kinds of things. But if we go to the blockchain, for example, and to cryptocurrencies, I, I won't remember the name of the company in itself now, but there were cryptocurrencies being used to send uh, money from one country to another, especially uh, remittances from from uh, workers overseas or people just sending money to their families. And the reason why why they did that, even though it was a legal gray area, it was because it was so complicated to send small amounts of monies, money overseas. It was so complicated because of fees and taxes and everything of the like and then you basically have a technology that bypasses the system goes to a completely different way and, and delivers the same product and then the government has the choice of denying it and prohibiting it or adapting to it and i think cryptocurrencies even though there is a lot of of buzzword and hype of course but there are some good examples of times where it showed okay we should be focusing on this uh, even the whole gig economy, for example, which is something said in a very bad tone, and especially in Europe, it, it probably was something that we needed in one way or another as as work changed. But we needed Ubers and Deliveroo's and every one of those companies to pop up and make use of this before government realized, okay, we should try to to create rules about this. So sometimes technology has the the job of being the vanguard, and then government comes behind trying to fix it up. That's interesting. Go on, go on, Travis. Yeah, I think that's an important point because you know cryptocurrency has been around for a long time, and the idea of blockchain has been around oh, for a very long time. I don't know exactly. <laughs> maybe Nico knows exactly when. I think it was like. I think it was like. Uh, oh, I don't want to say anything that's incorrect, <laughs> but it, the, the idea has been around for like ten years or over ten years, maybe. And the thing with technologies and currencies and things like that is it's always socially driven change. So something's like almost certainly there's something happening in society today that is pushing the need for cryptocurrency. And that's why all of a sudden it's actually coming into use. It's a technology that's been there for a very long time. It's been proven to work. It's been proven to be better than the current system, but there was no need for it. You know, people still trusted the current banking system. People still trusted uh, paper money, uh, digital money in banks, things like that. But now, there's something underlying that's causing people to move away from that and want to tr try something new like cryptocurrencies and blockchain, which is obviously some sort of social drive pushing it. Uh, it's interesting uh, that you would go to the Uber example, right? So Uber did have a strategy of they would go to countries where they were pretty sure that Uber was illegal or almost illegal. And their plan was that they would provide a service so good that when government took to the time to, to ban Uber from the country, there will be an outrage. Wow. So it's the idea that people would fight more for something that was taken away from them than for something that they never knew existed. So rather than go in and asking for the authorization to do this, they would just find like a hot potch way to deliver the service for as long as possible and then have the population fighting it to, to be kept on. And of course, every time you deliver something innovative and the, the, the ultimate buzzword, right, like disruptive, you have the earlier players being very angry about it. So the only the only allies that you have in that sense, if you don't have government, you have to have the users. And if we see so many people migrating to cryptocurrencies, 
I am 100% of Travis on that. It's because there is a demand for a service that they don't see being offered in other places. And then it's a matter of government or they have to regulate it or put some rules or at least make a less affair. But if the users want to use it, there's little that can be done. Yes. Yeah, I get that. I yeah. really understand that. Go on, Trav. And I think, um, you know, like Uber and Airbnb came around at a time where like the American financial crash happened and people, you know, people had a car with four other seats in it that were empty and they were driving to work with one person in the car and they had a house with two or three empty bedrooms. So Airbnb and Uber came up at a time where people really needed extra money and they had this like empty space and empty availability for people to, to use the stuff that they had. And, you know, the only reason that we have Uber and Airbnb is through a social change that happened where people needed money and they had to share the things that they had with other people. And I think things like cryptocurrency and blockchain are coming in now where as, as a society, the human race is becoming a global society. We're no longer, you know, confined to an island or a continent or a country. People go all over the world now and it's like a daily thing. Getting on a plane and flying six hours away is a, a daily part <laughs> Not of daily, life. hopefully. And, um, <laughs> no, 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 hopefully not. But you know what I mean? It's like a, a daily occurrence. Um, and the need to be able to sleep somewhere and travel and, and do all these things at something that's much more convenient than public transport or, uh, re you know, really boring, horrible hotels. You know, you go to sleep in somebody's really nice house where people live and you get in a car with somebody who works a full-time job and they're driving you to a meeting or something. It's, it's a completely strange social movement that's happening. And then being able to actually pay for that is very important. And, you know, like we spoke about earlier on in the conversation and like actually having money on you is a difficult thing today when you're, you know, going from Germany to, to uh, Oslo to somewhere outside of the EU, things like that. It's a very difficult thing to make sure you, you're able to pay for these services that are actually all online. Ubers run online, Airbnbs run online. All of these things that people are now using are online. So having a currency that's online and makes it easier to transfer without all these expensive bank fees is, is a big social driver in this technology. Yes, yeah, it's very interesting. And I think a really interesting point made actually by Nico as well, when you said about how the people, the people influence the government and the government influences people. It's, it's essentially a back and forth, isn't it? It's, a it's, a, it's interaction back and forth between government and between people. And I kind of wonder what you think the role government plays. As society makes more decisions for itself, I wonder what the role go government plays in all of this. What do you think moving forward? That's a, that's a very interesting question, Hassani, and I'm going to try to think about my words very carefully here. Uh, because we are treading uh, woefully close to politics, Ooh. but I, I do, I do believe, I do believe in a smaller. And you're right. Like society of today is not the society of a hundred years ago, much less three hundred years ago. And as we moved from savage to like uh, medieval Europe and stuff like this, you had an important like as governments grew stronger, societies grew wealthier. And then you even have the case of, I think, Portugal in the 14th century, where because they were one of the first solidified monarchies, uh, they were able to be one of the first to colonize uh, other parts of Europe because they didn't have to worry about some minor count coming up and uh, like killing the, the king because it's a different style, it's a different point. But at some point, I, I'm going to argue here after the Second World War, maybe 
maybe even after the Cold War, having too big of a government actually started being a, a weight on people. And because people start trusting themselves and we have technology that is much more efficient than some government programs, uh, we have to have this conversation as a society of what should be gov what government should not be doing anymore. What should be we doing ourselves? And, and we, when we look at the, uh, at the economy, I think the major job of the government is providing a fair and efficient playing field. So I mean like moving against fraud, moving against a clear criminal undertakings at the same time, providing the very basic uh, macro microeconomic spectrum. So things that we don't even have to discuss here because it's something that they do pretty well already. But when it comes to the idea of governments having to overregulate kinds of technologies, I'm a, I'm a skeptic. I would prefer to, to create like a more of a sandbox approach. Like let it, let it go, let it show, uh, treat it as fraud if they really are frauds or treat it maybe under the same marketing rules that you treat banks, but don't try to come in and try to say exactly how that's gonna work because uh, that became even kind of a joke, right? Because if the German government does that, the companies or the projects are just gonna move to Estonia, if not Estonia, to Russia, if not Russia, to Turkey. We live in a globalized world. And if government tries to be too big and too powerful, you'll just see them hmm. moving to another place. So that, that, is a, that is a very good discussion. I think that we should be having it very often in our society nowadays. Yes, very interesting. Trav, any, any commentary? Oh man, no comments. <laughs> no, uh, no, think. Protect yourself, Travis. Yeah. Protect yourself. Politics, uh, <laughs> politics is a, such a topic. Um, I think, yeah, like a lot of a lot of banking and a lot of what created the institution of banking came from governments having to pay for wars. You know, so the government bought a lot of stuff from its people, and you know, took a lot of its people to fight wars. And then they, after the war, they were left with all these people who now wanted money for these goods and services they sold to the government, as well as the people who went and served on that, you know? So banks were put in place to try and delegate this debt and, and slow it down and make sure that people were getting their money over the course of time and things like that. And now we're at a stage where a, a type of banking and a type of currency and a type of technology is coming out that isn't the result of having to pay for a war. And I think it's a very different solution that we're going to have to think of of how to you know govern it and maybe a government isn't the necessary body that should be governing it wow that's yeah that's really interesting and i thought of that in terms of the war situation that's that's really interesting travis <laughs> it it's actually it's actually something also that i heard in which is doing a workshop about technology right about the ethical implications of technology and stuff like this and i am a big uh, skeptical on the role of government especially too big of a government but when you talk in norway those guys love their government so much i was so impressed they were like oh the government should solve everything uh, if they cannot solve it we should send to the un and i'm like do you really think that the un can do this guys like they're having they have much bigger issues to be dealing right now it's like no no that should be the that should be the place where we we should have the discussion. And I found strange because I felt that people nowadays, especially in developed countries, would want the discussion to be very local. But you still have certain cultures where this belief in government is very high and you, you feel okay delegating it to a higher sphere. So it might be that there's not one single answer. Definitely there is no single one correct answer to this question. But it is still something that we have to, we have to discuss and discover as a society. 
that's yeah and, and i think as well as you move move forward and technology people society is changing becoming more complex decentralized exponential etc i always kind of wonder how the future will look and we know that we should never look to the past to predict the future and we're moving towards something that hasn't ever been done before ever and it's, it's very exciting very daunting very interesting and i sometimes try to imagine and think about how the future looks and build the model in my mind and walk around it and see what it looks like and see what's going on but you know the information is always emerging and that model is, is always changing i mean do you guys ever have visualizations thoughts ideas of how the future looks i think travis should take that one the future um it's a difficult i spent i spent a majority of my time on that subject, thinking about more of the, like the future of the industri like the industrial side of things, you know, like how how people's lives change in terms of the work they do in industry, and it's a bit off topic, but I think you know, like as as technology starts improving and as as people start, okay, wait, like let's change pitch pitch and pivot here. <laughs> so, <laughs> Like my idea of, of a good system of management is sort of like a Christmas tree. You know, at the bottom of the Christmas tree, there's a, a lot of people and those people have a lot less responsibility. And as you move up the Christmas tree, you have less people with more responsibility. And at the top, you have the manager, you know, sort of thing. And with that system of management, the person at the top isn't necessarily doing enormous amounts of work, but they're doing the most important work. And I think as a society now, we're starting to fill those lower levels of, of society with you know, robots and software and, and cobots and all these sorts of things to take away responsibility from us as human beings. But that doesn't necessarily mean we're removing the bottom tier of people from that position. It just means we're putting a tier of uh, like another layer underneath that and moving everybody who was currently on that layer up a level. You know, So now it gives people who are working a menial day job all day long, time to do something else, to study, to, to go into a different field. So I think in the beginning, it might be very disruptive, but after a while, it'll start to allow people to, you know, do more fulfilling things and more enriching things and think about life instead of stand in front of a machine and press a button all day because, you know, that's all they're qualified to do and that's all they have the, the skill and ability to do, you know? And I think that's that's going to be some sort of social change that we see coming from you know the the automation of industry. Mm. I don't know if that that answered the question, but that's that's sort of my idea of the future. I think you know like a lot of the the lower level stuff will be taken away from human beings and given to to software and and robots to be taken to taken on. And I kind of think and wonder what the implication of that would be economically when you're not paying people but instead you're paying machines nico <laughs> <laughs> the, I, uh, I think that's not only you and that'll be right like uh, we have people like bill gates and warren buffett so in one side from a very technological perspective and the other side from a very economical perspective discussing the topic and there's things like um, robot taxes. There's so many other projects. Uh, it's actually, I actually feel that there's already a lot of research being done right now. So I feel that we will actually come up with a couple of solutions in the in the coming in the coming years. I even have a very good friend of mine who was discussing something akin to giving the population shares 
into the overall automation of society so that if you believe that all those jobs are going to be lost, why not give shares of the company creating those robots to the people who lose their jobs? So in a way of a, a security policy, if the robots do very well and see your job, then at least you have stock on that company that went very well. Wow. So it's a crazy idea, but yeah, it's a crazy idea, but it's something that people are starting to think about, right? Like uh, actually economics is very good in creating security in terms of how can we create a system where if something goes wrong, something else clicks and something else comes along. My biggest worry about the, um, about this in the technological and the economical field, it's about uh, workers, it's about people, because even if new work is created uh, in other places, I feel that the people who lose their jobs many times don't have the opportunity to take those jobs, or even worse, they don't believe that they have the capacity of doing those jobs. So I had the discussion with, uh, with a member of parliament in Germany uh, a while ago, where I said that I'm not a big fan of, of very big proposals, but on that point, we should actually offer psychological help to people. Because if you lose your job at something that you did for 10 years, there is enough time for you to learn something else to do for the next 10, and then maybe something else to do for the 10 years after that. But a lot of people don't see it that way. A lot of people feel, okay, I, I lost my job, I don't have to society anymore. And we have to change that mentality because work will always be there. Unless we live in a utopia where every one of our needs and wants is solved automatically until we get to that point, there will always be work. So the first, cha uh, the first challenge is how to turn this work into jobs. And then the second challenge is how to turn the workers into new positions, into new parts. And that is the biggest challenge. On the economical, uh, on the economic system, we, we will do okay with that. My, my biggest worry is about workers. And I think what Travis said about the factory floor is something that we should be looking very, very attentively to. Like what's going to happen to those workers? That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Because like, yeah, I'll jump in it because I, I was kind of visualizing and thinking about that as you're talking about it. And something you mentioned about, about if you have robots doing people's jobs and automating it, you then can't pay the people, but instead you pay the workers whose jobs were lost in shares of the productive output of the company as a result of using robots. And that could even be tokenized in blockchain effects. That, <laughs> that money then be, being made and created could then, could then have some kind of, um, you know, interest and growth and can be then traded, and then can be traded with other tokens and other robot, robot um, productive output tokens from other parts of the world and markets. But, but though, my issue here is that even if you are making a sweet buck, from tokens that have been made by using machines from 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 a, from a textiles plant in China because the people that lost their jobs and you trade trade tokens with them the idea is that people still humans people you know we still need work and and you know we're still also if we are going to be 10 10 billion people by 2050 we're still going to be consuming resources yeah. so that's you know, and, sure. and like, and, and and whilst you can have robots doing automotive tasks and making textiles and, you know, and plastics and, you know, I don't know, delivering stuff, etc., i.e., quote unquote, the economy, even though you have that, if you have 10 billion people that still have to consume resources and food and water and need shelter, even though you solve the, the money problem, the you still haven't <laughs> solved the consumption and, 
and and the human problem <laughs> of like actually needing to live and think and do stuff and have a purpose. And very, very interesting too, you mentioned about the mental health aspect of, of people losing their jobs. I mean, that's fascinating. That's like, you know, a, a whole business case in itself. You know, <laughs> that's like a you know, a, a business that, that you can visualize existing in 30 years time where people have counseling for losing their jobs to robots, you know? But I think also, <laughs> wow. True. It, maybe it's even a robot doing the counseling. That would be sick. <laughs> obviously, obviously, you may have saw that Sophia mm. robot in Saudi Arabia, you know, and, and like, you know, you can have Sophia counseling yeah, yeah. you, um, you know, for losing That's your terrifying. job to, to, <laughs> to her and her collective. <laughs> fascinating stuff although like I, I call me call me naive call me an optimist at that point but uh especially in the work that we do i think travis can also bring up a, a bit of that we do see some some young people some old people some people with very very good ideas on how to hit the bottlenecks you know the things that held uh, yeah, they hold us back as a, as a society and how can we deliver more and how we can like open up new resources and we will have to come up to, to terms with our meat consumption and natural resource consumption at some point. But I, I, I'm also sometimes very positive about our ability to create solutions to deal with those problems. Uh, I'm, many times I'm more optimistic in our ability to create technology to deal with those problems and our ability to use technology to, uh, to apply the technology to solve the problem. So I feel more comfortable that somebody will find a way, for example, to reduce global warming that I am confident that government would take that way and apply it to actually reduce it. Mm. Yeah, that's, hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's been a, a fascinating conversation. Um, is there any points that you have in mind that you, you want to share or elaborate on before we close up? No, I think it's, uh, it's been a good conversation. It's been a good chat. Yep, I, I agree as well. I think that if I have anything close to a final remark, it's just to, to understand that society kind of guides technology, but technology sometimes also guides society. And it's tough to see what's what. <laughs> well, 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 yeah, technology obviously is guiding society because we use our phones all the time and we're being influenced by information, which then influences our decision-making and our behaviors, which then influences more information, which basically that influence the information that comes to us again in the next next cycle. It's an iterative process, isn't it? And technology is going to society, and we're, we're guiding it, um, which which is really interesting. Can we touch on AI quickly? Of course, of course. Uh, <laughs> Can that's we? Actually a topic that's very very dear to to my heart and Travis. We are uh, the co-hosts here in Berlin for the Meetup AI, Ooh. one of the biggest the biggest groups for for machine learning. And data science, so the more practical side of AI. So yeah, sure. Let's talk about AI. Let's tell me, tell AI. me, tell me. Let's jump in. So so AI, okay, we're gonna segue off then and talk about AI for a bit. Cause you know, I'm really enjoying this. So I don't want to call it a day yet. Uh, okay, so so okay. So meetup.ai, what is it? What are you up to over in Berlin? Yeah, so basically the idea was to create a place where we could have reliable meetings. So we do it every month, the first Wednesday of the month. And we bring very practical applications of uh, artificial intelligence technology nowadays. So forget your Terminator-style conversation about how robots are going to kill us all and steal our jobs or like make love to our wives, but more like how can how can we use the technology of today and of next year to improve ourselves? So 
which kind of tools, which kind of programs, which kind of, what is the, what is the market actually like? And I think it's a great opportunity to see people creating impressive work with AI, many times work that is not stealing anything from a human, but actually creating something completely different in that sense. So it's, it's very inspiring, I would say. It's very complex, and we try to make it so that people from other fields, like, like myself, like an economist or a non-engineer, can also take part and, and discuss. Uh, we, I think we did 10 events this year, and the plan is to basically double the size uh, next year. Awesome. So you're creating a space in Berlin for collaboration, discussion um, on AI. On the and practical AI, yeah. Yeah. Practical AI. And I think like I think the most important thing, especially to, to both Nico and I, is we've gone to a lot of these these meetups and things that are focused around machine learning and AI. And you know, in the beginning, Nico and I would always talk about like how these people would use it as like a fear mongering, you know, like they're gonna take your jobs, they're stealing your data, this, this, this. And no one was actually talking about the positive side. And no one was actually getting you know, like real software engineers in and, and real data scientists and bringing them in for these discussions. And what we found is our events, uh, I think the last event had over 100 people and a majority of them were people who were actually data scientists and people who develop their own product projects and work in these companies. And I think that's like, that's the biggest sign of what our conversations are doing. It's like actually bringing people who aren't looking at the fear mongering side of things and they're coming to have an actual conversation about how we apply this technology and what we do with it. And I mean, like two of the most interesting ones for myself that, I, that I've seen coming out of it is a company called AI Scope. And then just recently, um, uh, what was the other one that, that I sent you the other day, Nico? Um, Marantics? Marantics, yeah, that's it, Marantics. How's that spelled? How's both, that spelled? I'm going to Google it right now. Marantics. Mar yeah, Marantics. M-E-R, I think. M-E-R-A-N-T-I-X. And... I, I saw a talk from one of the engineers the other day about um, improving radiology to find breast cancer using AI and machine learning. Um, and then as well as AI scope, I think Nico can talk about AI scope because he's got a very good relationship with the, the team around AI scope. Um, and like, those are the two of my favorite things to have seen coming out of, you know, like Nico and I working together on these projects. Mm, okay. Okay. Go on. Yeah. And, and as a very la last bit to it, it's actually very interesting as well from the point of view that we were talking before about workers and technology innovation, is that I feel that the workers that lose their jobs are the ones that are not aware of technology innovation. So if, you were the, if you're the guy who worked on the very first computers or tried to look how they are, what they're capable of, chances are that you're not the guy in your section who was fired because you learn how to use the new technology, right? Yeah, you, that's so true. Uh, rather than waiting for technology to catch you by surprise, and then, then yes, then the moment that you blink, it can do your job 15% better than you can, and then it's already enough for you to be fired. Rather than waiting for that point, why not look for the early technology to do yourself your job 50% better and protect it? So I think the best way to protect jobs is to, is to almost vaccinate people against this technology disruption by teaching them technology. <laughs> if they I'm learn how it in. works, they will be protected. Yes, yeah, that's very interesting. And also, be sure to introduce me to, to the people, the founders at AIScope. We can talk to much about that. I will be excited to talk to them. Uh, Eduardo Perry is a great guy. I really like him. That's really cool. 
Yeah, maybe Nika, you could do like a, a short little thing about AI scope. And we're not, this isn't us plugging AI scope. There's no, <laughs> yeah. no there's paid endorsement. No game. <laughs> it's even an NGO, so I don't think that they have any butt to pay us. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. So basically, the idea on AI scope was to use something that has been uh, used very, very often, uh, which is computer vision, the ability of computers to identify certain kinds of patterns as an image. So you, you probably already saw somewhere like a cat. Uh, that shows cats and say it's a cat or it's not a cat. And what they did was the first they created their own hardware, so a, a, a lighter, cheaper version of a microscope. And then the second, yeah, so they, the, with the microscope, they, they bought the camera off of Amazon and then they just made like a quick, you know, first out of wood and then 3D printed housing for it. And in total, with the cell phone, I think it was like just around 60 to $100 to build your own wow. microscope. Yeah. Which you know, like industrial medical level microscopes are you know tens of thousands of, of dollars to be able to take one to Africa to to do the work that they're and doing. And it can be assembled like over there as well, which is very good because that you could literally send everything online uh, rather than having to send out like specific uh, specific units. And then the the second part, and maybe we can also say where the magic happens, is the idea that you can use computer vision to identify malaria uh, inside of blood cells. Uh, without any doctor present uh, because what you face today is that malaria is one of the cheapest diseases to cure right. at the same time as one of the deadliest ones on earth and if that's not a mark of shame in human society like i, I don't know what it is and one of the biggest reasons why people sometimes think they have malaria but they don't go to the doctor the first one is that there probably there's no hospital around and the second one is that maybe they they think they have malaria but the hospital is two days away and they don't want to spend two days going to the hospital just for the maybe they have malaria. So, and that because that basically means four days off work. So what they do is together with the machine learning software that can run, I think nowadays it can even run offline, uh, and, the, and the microscope, you allow people with very, very little training to go to those villages, identify if people have malaria. Uh, right now, I think malaria has five different stages. They do three, so the first three. And, and if that person has the malaria, you can basically tell them, okay, you really have to go to the hospital, and then they can move to the hospital afterwards. So it's not a complete solution, but it's something that goes very deeply into why people die of this disease that we should have been able to, to cure like a long time ago. I think the pills uh, that you have to take cost like five cents nowadays. Really? We worked a lot into how to, how to cure it much cheaper, but nobody actually put the money on how to diagnose it faster. I think everybody wants a PR of saving lives. Nobody wants a PR of trying to look up for who's sick. Mm. Wow. That's really interesting. Oh, they're very good. Maybe maybe uh, we can organize for where the He's a great guy to talk. Uh, he can give an idea on what AI and exponential technology is doing for, for, for health. It's a very interesting topic as oh, well. Oh, fascinating. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, I'm really excited. That would be a great that. conversation, actually. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm very glad that we were able to actually cover a bit of AI as well. Um, it's been it's been absolutely fascinating, guys. Wow, it's been really, really good. So, so yeah, I'm kind of thinking, are there any more segues and tangents, or are we about are we, are we about there, do you think? How's it going? Like Any any more ideas or commentary you'd like to make on, on these various topics? Uh Say it, Travis. Yeah. I think like the last the last thing that we just spoke about, I think it's like a good a good overall view of what we're trying to do with you know Meetup AI as well as the GTC. And it's getting people who are actually working in these fields, you know, things like AI scope, 
and I, you know, they're, they're doing something about it. They're, they're learning, they're trying to teach other people, they're trying to involve government, or like not involve governments, but get governments to make the change to use these things. And I think that's like that's the biggest conversation that Nico and I are trying to yeah, get. Yeah, and if have. I can add anything on top of that, is that people should learn a bit more about technology. And if they knew a bit more, they actually might get less scared of it rather than more. And that is the job of people creating good technology to to make our societies better, not only government. And that's the kind of people that we should be sponsoring and looking after and trying to support them in any way we can. I think that's a great uh, for our remark, uh, just like Travis said, both for the Meetup AI and for the Good Technology Collective so that we can all together have a better society. Yeah, I really get that. That's, that's, a, that's a really powerful statement to make. And I think with you know, GTC, obviously you're doing events and you're doing content, you're releasing documents, etc. And have you thought about, have you thought about other means through which to spread the information? I was just kind of thinking then, just whilst you we're saying that an image, image came to my mind about, I don't know, do you have some kind of idea for some kind of platform they could like actually create for people to be able to engage with technology and learn about it in a streamlined way that's also interactive? Because it seems like you have a really, really good thing there for the community in Berlin, but maybe as people at other sides of the world that want to engage with GTC, but haven't got the scope or means to get to Berlin. Have you thought about that? Of course. So uh, first of all, for any about the work of the GTC and the stuff that we have published until then. You can look at our website, thetechnologicollective.com. In the newsroom, there's a list of our articles, partnerships many times about the events we're doing as well. So the articles are a very good read. And it's already a big plan for us, and Travis knows this as well, for 2019 to innovate in our format so that we can expand from the event and article format into new things. Uh, this was a great opportunity to, to do our first podcast in a sense might be something that we will look for in the future. We, we already did a train uh, with webinars as well, together with Udacity. And awesome. the idea is that 2019 will be able to bring up much more exponential ways to deal with technology. So away from only articles and, and meetups and events. So you're 100% right, Hassani. Like, and I really invite you to take a look at the articles. If anything that you find there is very interesting, I'll be happy to help set up a couple of people to talk about it. But overall, you're right. We're going to be expanding this and we're going to be bringing it up to more people all over the world, hopefully in an interactive way as well. And maybe just reading the article is very, it's a very lonesome uh, activity, right? Like you might want to comment and send things and we have to find a way to, to give a voice to people as well. We just don't want to be talking. We want to be listening as well. Yes. Yeah, and I think like the audio visual side of things is, is going to be the new media, you know, like nobody sits on their phone to read an article on the way to work anymore. Everybody's Come listening on, to podcasts. I, I, I do that. <laughs> <laughs> I even pay for my own You're a dying breed, man. I know, I know. <laughs> no, but I really think like the, the podcast is a, a really great way to, to get to people who are commuting and to who are doing things where they can't necessarily stop for 20 minutes to read an article or a newspaper. So I think like there's definitely different types of media that we're going to try and target over the next the next year in 2019, and I think like maybe some sort of podcast or like you said some sort of small interactive way where people could you know get on for a couple of minutes, learn something new in the in their day when they have some time, and then carry on with their life. Mm, think about it, yeah. Think about it because I think it's really interesting, and I'm sure there's people as well that love to collaborate. 
um, I'll, I'll, I'll bear that in mind moving forward because I'm sure that I have some people in mind that could be interesting to talk to about this. Yeah, definitely. That'd be um, great. Building some kind of like platform. That's really, really exciting. Yeah. So, okay, let's call it a day then. Let's call it, call it, call it, call it a wrap. Um, yeah, covered a lot of ground. Um, of course. I'm going to post, obviously, all your links and content, etc., on the cover page for the podcast. Um, and yeah, I encourage listeners to really go online and check out GTC um, and their content. That you know, it's really fascinating stuff. And if, obviously, if you're also in Berlin, do head down to either music.ai or a GTC event because it's going to be absolutely fascinating. And yeah, when I'm next in Berlin, we'll we'll hang out and catch up because I'm keen to to come to one of my events now. That's <laughs> really really exciting. <laughs> so yeah, nice one. Looking forward to it. Thank you very much for having us here. Great opportunity. Yes. Great talking to you about it. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. Thanks for the space. Awesome. Thank you very much. Have a great rest of the weekend. Okay. okay. Yeah, that was that was great, man. <laughs> <laughs>